Support for Health Matters on MSPR comes from the Northeast Kentucky Area Health Education Center, located at St. Clair Healthcare in Moorhead. Additional information on the Northeast AHEC is available online at neahec.org. Hello and welcome to Health Matters. I am your host and rootin' tootin' radio health evangelist, Dr. Tony Weaver. Rootin' tootin' are we the, in the Wild West? The rootin' tootin' is back. Well, I just like alliterative adjectives. Thanks to our listeners of True Talk Internet Radio. This is the Bang the Trash Can Slowly Show. This is baseball. You may have heard of a uh, 1973 American sports film, Bang the Drum Slowly. Uh, it was the debut of a little-known actor named Robert De Niro, and it was a remake of a 1956 film by a little-known American actor named Paul Newman. So a lot of people got their start with the baseball film Bang the Drum Slowly, and we thought Bang the Trash Can Slowly is the newer version of that. Thanks to our listeners at True Talk Internet Radio, and here with me to hold down the other side of the studio is rip-roaring co-medical host Shelly Irving, assistant professor at the University of Kentucky Physician Assistant Program. Hey, Shelly. Hello. I like the rip-roaring. Rick Phillips is out on assignment. <laughs> yeah, still. still. <laughs> He's out on assignment till we say he can come back. But to listen to our show, uh, you can tune in to WMKY.org. That is the website for Moorhead State Public Radio. Lots of good shows on there. Ours is one of them. Please take a look. And if you have a question about what we said, perhaps there was a grammatical error that uh, really rankled you and needs to be documented, uh, please look at WMKY.org. Download the show or play it from uh, the uh, website there. And then you can write to us uh, if you want to. We're on HM Radio Show on Facebook. Thanks to the radio station here, we're regularly putting health features there that are of interest to people in Kentucky and around the world. We have reduced our presence some. I'm not certain what I think about Facebook. We'll, in fact, talk more about that later in the show. But at any rate, you can still reach us. We still read it. We're on HM Radio Show. Our sponsor for the second week in a row, the Top 7 Causes of Cancer. We did this last week. We didn't do a very good job. (laughs) And so we thought, let's try it again. Cancer, the second leading cause of death in the United States in 2017. The American Cancer Society estimated cancer diagnosed in 1.7 million Americans. It takes a while for the numbers to come in, but that's their best guess right now. We'll kill more than 600,000, and that is second behind only heart disease in terms of cause of death. And when you look at it, cancer and heart disease are so far above. Both of them are about double the third leading cause of death. We'll actually talk more about that next week, uh, uh, the other causes of death. But cancer is second. They, I had uh, some reliable information that said that cancer might overtake heart disease as number one. The last numbers I saw, that is not so, that is not close. Kentucky did have more cancer deaths than heart disease at one point, but several states flipped back to heart disease, I think because of obesity-related conditions, and uh, I'm not certain where Kentucky sits on that right now, to be uh, honest. Now, most people think cancer is a genetic curse. It it is uh, spread from your parents and your ancestors, and you are merely helpless human protoplasm in the grips of a genetic death threat from cancer. Time bomb. Ticking time bomb. A ticking time bomb. Uh, But according to the American Cancer Society, modifiable risk factors, things you can change, cause about 47% of cancer cases and 45% of deaths. Even if you have that genetic predisposition, perhaps cancer runs heavily in your family, in that case, it may be more important that you make these lifestyle changes to try to protect yourself from cancer. And so they have seven 
modifiable lifestyle risk factors uh, that uh, cause about 42% of cancers, we believe. Uh, the reason this came up, and this was actually it's a couple years old, it's in 2017. Uh, the reason that this came up was um, we have always said that uh, smoking causes about a third of all cancers, and uh, it's uh, it's actually still pretty close. But obesity has become much more prevalent in the United States. Uh, almost uh, uh, three quarters of Americans are either overweight or obese, and so has obesity loosened smoking's hold as number one preventable cause of cancer. Obesity does cause cancers. That is very important. So we wanted to give you the numbers. Cigarette smoking, 19% of cancer cases, 28.8% of deaths. A couple of things you notice. It's still up close to a third at 28.8%. Second thing is this is a particularly deadly cancer. 19% of cases, but 28.8% of deaths. You would rather have fewer deaths than cases. And instead, you have a higher percentage of overall cancer deaths coming from lung cancer. So it is a very deadly cancer. Obesity and overweight come in second uh, at 7.8% of cases and 6.5% of deaths. Again, a quarter, basically, of the deaths and uh, a little bit uh, less than half of the cases of cancer from obesity and overweight compared to cigarette smoking. Alcohol intake, 5.6% of cases, 4% of deaths. And alcohol, there is no safe level as far as cancer is concerned. So alcohol may be a wonderful lifestyle thing. It may. Some people feel that a moderate amount of alcohol drinking may increase life expectancy. That is all true, but it does increase your risk of cancer, and pretty much with the first drink. It's not like two drinks are safe and three is uh, uh, dangerous. It's pretty much if you drink. Lack of exercise, 2.9% of cases, 2.2% of deaths. Low fruit and vegetables. We've talked about diet here before. It is a complex thing, but it appears that if you eat more fruit and vegetables, it is possible. That is linked to, but maybe doesn't cause a lower rate of cancer. But if you eat more fruit and vegetables, it's probably a good idea. 1.9% of cases, 2.7% of deaths. So whatever your, your low vegetable cancers are, they're dangerous cancers. More deaths than cases. Uh, more broccoli. higher percent of deaths mm -hmm. than percent of cases. And then finally, number seven, HPV infection. Human papillomavirus infection, a sexually transmitted viral infection. Uh, mainly in the past, we linked it to cervical cancers and some rare cancers uh, of the penis, but uh, it appears to have a pretty strong link to oral cancer. Uh, that is no longer speculative. It appears it actually may be causing oral cancers. And a new wave of oral cancers in younger people who don't necessarily smoke and drink heavily, as we used to see with uh, oral cancer. Having sex with fewer than 10 people lowers your risk. Also, getting a vaccine against human papillomavirus lowers your risk uh, without increasing your uh, sexual activity, as best we know from our studies. Uh, they said this. This rankled me. I'll tell you, Shelley. The combination of excess body weight, alcohol intake, poor diet, and physical inactivity accounted for the highest proportion of all cancer cases in women and was second to tobacco smoking in men. Well, I think if you just add up a whole bunch of stuff, it causes a whole lot of things. Yeah, I mean, but, it's uh, 2 plus 2 plus 2 plus 2 is a bigger <laughs> number than 2 plus 2, right? Yeah, but I think uh, still the thing that, that really impressed me was even as we have reduced our cigarette intake, it still is the leading cause of cancer death by a long shot. That's our sponsor, Top 7 Causes of Cancer. We will continue to remind you gently of this without going in quite so much depth. First article, this was uh, from Modern Healthcare, March 3rd. Uh, Amazon's Alexa answers new questions on drug interactions. 
So there is a new service uh, allows users to ask Amazon's Alexa voice assistant for information about common medications, side effects, or harmful interactions with other drugs. Uh, this was developed by First Data Bank, and users can ask common questions related to medication. For instance, Alexa, is Advil safe for pregnant women? Alexa, what's the difference between Tylenol and Advil? Anyone with this device can use the service. You don't have to download a separate application. Now, is this just uh, over-the-counter medications? No, apparently, um, let's see, the uh, first data bank, I mean, those are things that obviously everyone would know. Uh, but uh, I think the first uh, data bank people, they're, they're working with all types of medications. I would not expect it to talk about ICU drugs or cancer chemotherapy or something like that. Maybe it will, but I doubt uh, Alexa wants to take that on. But certainly medicines for blood pressure or sugar uh, or uh, fluid pills, things like that, I would expect they would have it. Collaboration uh, between the medical management company Omnicell and Amazon personalized to individual users, so you can apparently go further and, per- and, and, and get an app that will talk about uh, specific medications or uh, uh, certain pharmacies. But uh, they mentioned uh, customers of current pharmacies that Amazon partners with will be able to use Alexa feature to review their current prescriptions, set reminders to take medications, and request pre- prescription refills. So Amazon starts off, Alexa starts off as a service thing. Buy this, play this music. It is now an information thing. Well, and, and it sounds like it could very quickly cross the line into a medical advising capacity now, but you know, I mean, patients are right now, I mean, Google yeah. <laughs> is doing the same thing. Uh, they, they'll Google their symptoms or they'll Google their medications and see what it says. So in that sense, there's several uh, organizations vi- vying for that uh, role. But it isn't the, the Google thing more passive, right? So I'll, I'll, I'll put whatever I want into the search bar and then I scroll through and I click and I control what I want to look at based on what it brings right. up. Alexa's just going to tell me. Right. right. Like, I'm not choosing. It's not multiple choice, right? Yeah, here's, here's, my, here's my concern about it. Uh, if I Google something, I look at the source, and I'll go to the National Library of Medicine. Uh, I'll go to the Mayo Clinic. I'll go to uh, uh, the uh, Harvard uh, uh, Medical Review, things like that. I find sources that I trust, or if I don't trust them, sometimes I, I don't really trust them, but at least I know where the bias is. You know, I, I could say, okay, yeah, that's what you say, but uh, look at this. You're actually sponsored by the, the drug company. Alexa just says, here's the truth. That is a level of trust that right now I don't have for Google or I don't have for my computer. I look at the source, and I try to figure out if, uh, if it's an unbiased source. And I think I'm not sure Alexa can do that in the spoken word. I, I mean, Alexa may say according to this source, uh, but uh, uh, when I have done these type of things, uh, voice searches before, it just gives me an answer. Right. And so I, I'm, I'm not confident of that. I don't know, Shelly, you know, and I wish Rick were here because Rick does have uh, uh, Alexa in his house. I These things still make me very nervous. Yeah, I have Alexa in my house as well, but, but I'm we sorry, don't. I discounted, did you see that? I discounted Shelly. I, I said, oh, she's a mere girl uh, and not able to manage technology not such as Rick does. Not savvy enough to have Well, see, Alexa I, I'm a mere boy house. and I don't even have text. <laughs> <laughs> there is that. So go ahead. You have it in your house. What yeah, do you I use do. it I for? I have Alexa in my house. And, you know, we just use it for basic stuff. I have programmed in what news sources I'm interested in, and so I can get a news report every day from it. I can get the weather. I can get commute uh, information uh, from news sources. I can ask for a recipe. I can, you know, I mean, I, 
I try to limit it to the things that I choose it to do. Can you ask just a random question without uh, necessarily having giving it access to a certain source? You just say, Alexa, what's uh, uh, who's the greatest of them all? You know, yes. Like mirror or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and uh, and we can. So we can ask, you know, sports game store, uh, scores or we can ask about something coming on TV or whatever. And I have no idea where the sources are that it gets that, that information from. But if I ask specifically for my news feed, then it is the outlet that I have chosen that it will give me. Well, we'll talk more later on the show about reliability of information. Um, I have concerns about that, but uh, I mean, I, I I have lots of concerns about the the sort of the electronic invasion. Anyway, keep in mind, I'm an old man and I'm very suspicious. Well, that's okay. <laughs> you can be suspicious. I'm suspicious. I would not ask Alexa about medications. I just I worry uh, the direction we're going, but. Uh, Alexa will soon be in your home settling arguments and providing you with up-to-date factual information without uh, necessarily uh, having the uh, complete sources uh, and uh, time in the future. We're going to take a break and come back with our second fractional portion. You're listening to Health Matters on Moorhead State Public Radio. Support for MSPR comes from the Northeast Kentucky Area Health Education Center located at St. Clair Healthcare in Moorhead. The Northeast AHEC connects students to careers, professionals to communities, and communities to better health. The Northeast AHEC strives to improve the supply and distribution of healthcare professionals through community and academic educational partnerships. More information is available online at neahec.org. Welcome back to the second fractional portion of Health Matters. I'm Shelley Irving. I'm Dr. Tony Weaver. This is the Bang the Trash Can Slowly Show. Our salute to the start of baseball season and hopefully a season where people will play fairly. They'll obey the rules and see who has the best team. That'd be new and different. <laughs> Our sponsor for the second time. Top seven causes of cancer death. The top seven preventable causes of cancer death. And we will run through them quickly this time. Cigarette smoking, 28.8% of all cancer deaths can be linked back to cigarette smoking. Now, if everyone stops smoking, we may not be able to get all of that 28.8%, but we could get a substantial part of it. And cigarettes are linked to many more cancers than lung cancers. They are linked to cancers of the uh, mouth and throat where the smoke rolls in. They are obviously linked to cancers of the lung and also the lining of the lung. They are linked to higher rates of cancers uh, for many things The after the chemicals leave the lungs and get into the bloodstream. And then finally, they're linked to a higher rate of bladder cancer as the chemicals from the cigarettes are excreted by your kidneys. So there are a lot of different cancers, and many of them very deadly, linked to uh, smoking. If you, if you still smoke cigarettes, for goodness sakes, you should stop. There are We now have a number of products to help with craving, to help uh, block the nicotine, to keep it from affecting your brain, or simply to substitute nicotine. I am not fond of vaping, but I have recommended it to some of my patients as a kind of a last-ditch effort to avoid the tar that you get when you burn leaves and inhale them into your lungs. 28.8% with cigarettes, 6.5% with obesity and overweight, 4% with alcohol intake. There is no safe level of alcohol as far as cancer. That can be, I believe, cancers of the breast, cancers of the pancreas. A couple of other types are elevated with alcohol intake. Ultraviolet radiation, uh, that is tanning beds is really where most of this is, 1.5%. Lack of exercise, 2.2% of deaths. Low fruit and vegetable intake. 
take 2.7% of deaths in HPV, human papillomavirus infection, which causes cancer of the cervix and the oral cavity mainly, and also penile cancer in men, 1.1% of cancer deaths if we vaccinate or we uh, take steps to protect ourselves from HPV. That's our top seven causes. Please look at your lifestyle and do not fall into that helplessness of assuming that your cancer is determined by your genes. You are a human being. You have free will. You have the ability to make decisions. Make good decisions, and it may pay off for you. 42% of all cancers, according to the American Cancer Society, have a preventable cause. Speaking of preventable causes of cancer, here is a new update from the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force. Now, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force is a group of medical experts. These are experts in primary care, in public health. They have a number of different specialties, and their job is to look at the scientific evidence and tell us what we should do to prevent illness. If you walk into my office and you say, I feel great, doc, I've got nothing going on today, just wanted to stop by and talk, then I follow the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. They're going to talk about getting vaccinations, uh, particularly influenza vaccine, uh, the pneumonia vaccine. For the grandparents, the uh, Tdap, that's the vaccine against pertussis or whooping cough, uh, so that you can be around your infant grandchildren. We're going to talk about screening for cancer with mammograms, with a colonoscopy or other colon tests, and screening for lung cancer with CAT scans. So we would talk about those things, even if you're perfectly healthy and have no symptoms. Well, they've got a new one. I'm sorry. <laughs> I am. But the idea is to protect your health. And I think uh, you can, as I read this, I want you to, the main thing I want you to realize is that I think this is a really important thing to do. They are recommending screening for hepatitis C infection in everyone ages 18 to 79 years. Screening for hepatitis C, everyone aged 18 to 79 years. Now, why would you scream for hepatitis C? It is the most common chronic long-term bloodborne pathogen in the U.S. The leading cause of complications from chronic liver disease, which is cirrhosis, more deaths than the top 60 other reportable infectious diseases combined. It kills. It kills a lot of people. The way it kills is it can lead to cirrhosis, which requires a transplant. It can also lead to liver cancer, which transplant's not going to save you if you get liver cancer. So uh, uh, those two things from long-term hepatitis C, the way it works is you may or may not even be aware that you have hepatitis C. doesn't cause a huge uh, uh, nausea, vomiting, getting jaundice, and all that. It just sort of slips in subtly into your liver when your liver's not looking, and it stays there year after year after year. Over time, the liver becomes scarred, becomes cirrhotic. The inflammation and irritation of the liver leads to liver cancer. So they said this causes more death than the other top 60 uh, reportable infectious diseases combined in the U.S., uh, and the cases have increased almost fourfold over the last decade because the way you get hepatitis C is through using IV drugs or being around a person who uses IV drugs and maybe getting exposed to their blood. So people who work in bloody situations, uh, dentists, dental assistants, uh, doctors, surgeons, and so forth, we worry a lot about hepatitis C. Uh, you may get exposed to uh, blood or blood products. If you are close to a person with hepatitis C, you're probably not going to get this from a, we, I don't know of a single case from a 
toilet seat or something like that, just uh, routinely being out in public. But it is, as I said, the most common chronic blood-borne infection. The most important risk factor for hepatitis C infection is past or current injection drug use. And unfortunately, a lot of people have done that, and a lot of people live with a lot of people who've done that. In the U.S., 4.1 million persons have past or current hepatitis C, uh, and 2.4 million have current infections. Cases of acute uh, hepatitis C infection have increased, again, four times over the past decade. The most rapid increase in young adults ages 20 to 39 who inject drugs increases in both sexes, but more pronounced in men, uh, especially in American Indian, Native, uh, Alaska Native, and non-Hispanic white populations. Those are the, the high uh, increases. Uh, so the rate is increasing. Now, on the other side, this is a treatable disease. Mm-hmm. It's expensive to treat at this point, right? Still, right. but but it is treatable, um, and and getting those viral loads down can help prevent the spread as well. So, yeah, we think if we treat aggressively, we we diagnose and treat aggressively. One, we're going to protect people from cirrhosis and liver cancer, and two is we will prevent it from being transmitted. Uh, as readily as it is. We can cure this disease. We really believe right now all the indications are those very expensive drugs that you hear advertised on TV, uh, and they are, uh, I mean, even uh, at a discount, you're still looking at uh, somewhere around sixty dollars to $80,000 for a course. This is, not, uh, this is not cheap. On the other hand, neither is cirrhosis, uh, liver transplants, liver cancer treatments. No, it's a disease that gets more expensive as it goes on, as right. it progresses as well. So yeah. the earlier you can get ahead of it, the better. So that is a new recommendation from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. If you have not been screened for hepatitis C, talk to your health care provider. Everyone, everyone ages 18 to 79 should be screened, and we've got a lot of work to do. Don't you think it's exciting, though, that we're kind of in this in this phase of healthcare where we can focus more on prevention. Yeah, and and the other thing that excites me is the the way this disease has happened. See, I'm an old man. I remember when we had hepatitis A and hepatitis B and something. Mm-hmm. And they weren't sure what it was. They called it non-A non-B. N-A-N-B hepatitis because we just we couldn't we couldn't find it. We could not isolate it in the labs. We found it. Um, it, we can't vaccinate against it. That's been a problem. But then we figured out there, we, we figured out we could treat it, but the drugs were horrendous. I mean, very few people would actually finish a course and the, the cure rates were around 50%, you know, not good enough. Then suddenly out came these very, very expensive medicines. Well, out came the medicines, which became expensive because everyone wanted them. Uh, where we could treat it with, and, and people could finish the course, and the side effects were tolerable, and the cure rates are way up there, uh, above 90%, as opposed to uh, much lower cure rates before. And I see that going from what is it to here's what it is, then going to uh, here's how to treat it, but it's not very good, and then going to, hey, we can, we can cure this, and, and those are the steps. And that's what, frankly, you know, in this world where our healthcare system is crumbling at the base, uh, where we are threatened with viruses and threatened with communicable diseases, our health habits have gone to pot. Uh, the the whole healthcare system is just frightfully expensive. You see diseases that used to kill people and don't, and you you have hope. And this is what gives me hope is things like that. All right, Shelly and I have already had an argument over this. It was gentle, I'll have to say, gentle. even though I'm rooting tooting, she's rip roaring. We still we managed to to disagree. <laughs> 
uh, gently. This was uh, a study, multi-institution study, Yale School of Medicine and University of Alabama, Birmingham. February 20th was when I got the press release, and I've had it in our, our portfolio, and I've not been able to talk about it because we had other things to talk about. They looked at the relative impact of two variables most often linked to life expectancy, race and education. Um, and that's why I think they got Birmingham uh, involved is so they could have uh, kind of cross-sectional uh, across the races. Uh, combining data, 5,000 and change black and white individuals in four U.S. cities. Lives and death, the people of this group, they recruited for a longevity study about 30 years ago. So now we they, had a chance to follow them a long time. And men and women both, right? Men and women, black and white, early 20s, followed for 30 years, now in their mid-50s. And they said, and this, this is, follow through with this, this study of 5,000 people followed for 30 years says that level of education, not race, is the best predictor of who will live the longest. Um, the deaths are occurring in working-age people, obviously often with children at age 50. Uh, this says, the thing, the thing that they, they, this suggests, it doesn't prove, but it suggests, if we put money and attention into improving the education of our citizens, we might be able to break down some of the health disparities. There, was, there were racial differences, no doubt about it. 9% of, uh, of uh, African Americans die at an early age compared to 6% of whites. So that's a, a, that's a, pretty, that's a, a third higher, uh, a 3% uh, overall, but a third uh, uh, higher than the, the, the whites. There's also more differences in uh, causes of death. Uh, black men more significantly likely to die by homicide. White men from AIDS. Uh, the most common cause of death across all groups over time are heart disease and cancer, which is that's number one and two for everybody everywhere. But... If you look at educational level, 13% of participants with a high school degree or less died in that 30 years, 5% of college graduates. And, and remind me what the educational endpoint was. It was just, just college educated? It was college education. Okay. It was education in general. And they compared, again, uh, high school or less compared to college, 13% versus 5%. Now, look if they looked at race and education at the same time, 13.5% of African-American subjects, 13.2% of white subjects with a high school degree or less died. I mean, you just, if you do not get a good education. Now, it may be that sick people don't finish high school or people who have, who, who are destined to be sick uh, are not able to finish high school. Well, I, that, that may be it. But if you look, um, everyone who didn't finish high school, regardless of their race, did poorly. Uh, now, then... If you do finish college, then 5.9% of African-Americans, 4.3% of whites with college degrees died. So interestingly enough, they separate by race when you look at college graduates. It, the first thing that, that they point out, and, and, and the point I'm taking home from this right now, is uh, we can, at least when we look at a 13% death rate versus 5.9, If we're trying to save the most lives, the first thing we do is we try to get people through high school and through college and see what it does. Maybe. Maybe. Well, you know, what about a, a post-high school trade school? Yeah, that's the question. You, you know, know, what what is it about, about education? Is this selecting winners and losers? Is that what it is? Uh, or is there something about an education that helps people make better decisions, uh, that teaches them discipline? Uh, is it uh, because uh, there are expectations from family? Uh, is this wealth seeping back in? The wealthy people are buying their way into the colleges. We know that's happening. 
is it self-fulfilling the people that successfully complete college believe in themselves have more confidence that they can change their path or well, make their own choices that's one of the things they mention is these deaths of despair you know, this is the alcoholism mm-hmm. drugs uh suicide uh, those type of, of deaths are much more common in people who don't have an education and, and uh, are uh, living in poverty they, uh, than uh, the more wealthy people. So, um, uh, And one pathway to wealth is to improve your education. It's hard to separate this out. And there's still, I mean, let's, let's just stop for a minute. Uh, there still is a racial disparity in survival among college graduates. So I, I don't want to minimize that. We have a lot of work to do, but there is one thing that we can tackle. And, and in the state of Kentucky, yeah. as you know, we pulled money out of education. I mean, we had a lot of uh, things to finance, but in terms of actively teaching our kids, uh, we actually reduced the amount of funds available uh, to teach our young people at a time when that seems particularly foolish when you look at this. Now, there, what they did not do, I want you to understand, this is an observational study, and we've talked about observational studies before. They did not pick some people and assign them to be educated to see what that would change. They simply looked at education, edu- educated versus uneducated, uh, regardless of race, and found uh, that uh, there was this commonality of, of uh, early demise among these people, this commonality that they, they all, regardless of their race, died at a younger age than they should have. And that might be a fixable thing. That is an experiment I would love to try, is to see if we could improve our education and maybe teach people uh, whatever this thing is that they need uh, so that they don't die in their 50s. Right. Right. So. And, I mean, more education is good, I think. I don't think that can be... Um, overstated but well, i think we need to be careful when we talk about college college is the pathway because there's so many other ways to get an education to get a good education to keep your brain active to learn those life skills without yeah you're right it's a thing that i think we ought to then it, obviously there's a lot of things you can explore with this the embarrassing thing is we're talking about this like there's a whole bunch of knowledge available and you you realize then this is this is a very very broad stroke. This is just a a sixty thousand foot uh, view of this. Oh yeah, those college graduates seem to be living longer. That's that's it. That's all we know. Yeah. Uh, and and teasing down and trying to figure out the exact interaction uh, of of the the racial disparities we have, the income disparities, the education disparities we have. Trying to figure out how the, all they interact. I know they're they're additive uh, for a lot of things. Uh, if you are uneducated, if you are a member of an ethnic or racial minority. Um, uh, life is tough. All right. This is the one I, I told you about this, Shelly, before we started. This is one just the opposite. Just the <laughs> just, opposite. I, I, I absolutely love this. This this was reported by Reuters uh, March 3rd. Uh, it was a study uh, in the British Journal of Dermatology. And I'm going to read you the entirety of the Reuters report because I want you to realize sometimes we just don't get it right. Uh, a study published in the British Journal of Dermatology reports Americans who eat a lot of mercury-containing seafood might be at increased risk for skin cancer, suggests a study based on national surveys. The data were based on 29,000 adults. Now, that's a lot of people. Uh-huh. Who uh, showed that those with the highest mercury levels in their blood were 79% more likely to report having had a non-melanoma skin cancer than those with the lowest levels. 
Investigators analyzed data from the annual health surveys of nationally represented samples of adults between 2003 and 2016 that included blood tests. So they did a survey. Did you have cancer? Did you have some type of skin cancer? And the non-melanoma or the basal cell and the squamous cells, these are the ones that stay in place, but they grow slowly, and you've got to get those cut out. Uh, And then they measured their mercury level, and they found a, a correlation. So that's it. That's what they said. This is the Reuters thing. And so... So mercury, mercury causes, causes skin, can- skin cancer. Now, okay. <laughs> all right. So you go back and you think, wait a minute, wait a minute. They specifically mention people who eat a lot of seafood, which is where they're getting the mercury. Mm-hmm. Now, where do people eat seafood other than Long John Silver's? On the coast. On the coast. And what else do you do on the coast? You swim and you frolic in the sun. Mm-hmm. And so... My problem, as soon as I read it, I said, well, gee whiz, I think that mercury exposure through seafood maybe, and and the fact that people who eat more seafood get more skin cancer, it's just simply saying people who go to the beach a lot get more skin cancer. It's a proxy for yeah, yeah, it is. You're you're right. I mean, we are not looking at the the actual cause. We're looking at it simply a marker or, as you said, a proxy. Uh, So I went and looked at the article, and the authors did not even mention it. They, they talked about how uh, mercury can, uh, obviously mercury is not a good thing to have in your system. If you eat seafood, you're going to get it, but uh, still it's not a good thing to have in your system and all the ways that it might disrupt pathways and, and lead to skin cancer and not a single mention of the fact that seafood eaters may get more sun exposure than uh, non-seafood eaters. Well, and maybe this accounts for some of those um, puzzling pockets of increased skin cancer uh, that we've talked about on the show in the past. You the um, the uh, these skin cancers actually the the rates of of melanoma anyway are highest among northern states. Mm-hmm. Could have been the lobster. Could, Could have been, been the lobster. The chowder. <laughs> the chowder. The chowder. <laughs> well, they didn't mention chowder, but uh, <laughs> we're going to take a break. We'll get our chowder. You get yours, and we'll come back with our third and final fractional portion on Morehead State Public Radio. Support for MSPR comes from the Northeast Kentucky Area Health Education Center located at St. Clair Healthcare in Moorhead. The Northeast AHEC connects students to careers, professionals to communities, and communities to better health. The Northeast AHEC strives to improve the supply and distribution of healthcare professionals through community and academic educational partnerships. More information is available online at neahec.org. Hi, and welcome back to the third and final fractional portion of Health Matters. I'm Shelley Irving. I'm Dr. Tony Weaver. This is the Bang the Trash Can Slowly Show. We are saluting the start of the spring baseball season and spring itself. We are solidly into March at this point, and uh, for all intents and purposes for many places in the United States, it's looking like spring. Spring brings with it baseball. Baseball brings with it trash cans and sign stealing and... uh, all sorts of ways to cheat. <laughs> and so we are celebrating a, a peculiar American tradition of cheating. That's what we're celebrating. Cheating. Our sponsor for the final time, the uh, top causes of cancer, reminding you 42% of cancers, according to the American Cancer Society, could be preventable by a change in lifestyle. 19% of all cancers uh, caused by smoking. You can stop it. You can simply stop it. Now, you may be exposed to some other people's smoke or to air pollution or other things that act like smoke, but my goodness, uh, just don't set fire to things Set fire to things and put them in your mouth. This is the uh, first law of uh, lung disease. Don't set fire to things and put them in your mouth. 
7.8% of all cancers uh, caused by obesity, 5.6% caused by alcohol, 4.7% by UV radiation. That's tanning beds, we think. I mean, there's certainly excessive sun exposure, uh, as well as chowder and lobster uh-huh. could be uh, causing yep. it. But um, tanning beds are, are the thing that you can change. Don't do that. And don't let your children do that. Physical inactivity, 2.9%. Poor diet, and that's uh, not enough fruits and vegetables, uh, more meats and processed meats. They're saying it comes in at 1.9%. And we think those changes, those are healthy changes. You should try them. Uh, They're not a guarantee you will not get cancer. But, uh, again, we're all trying to lead a healthy life, and uh, there's no reason for us to... to, Especially those of us who have a family history of cancer, there's no reason to tempt fate. Our sponsor, the top seven preventable causes of cancer death. This was February 25th, uh, published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Uh, a, 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 this was a review um, looking at Medicare beneficiaries ages 70 to 84 years uh, using data from 1999 to 2008 and then following them along. And it was looking at mammograms. Right now, uh, again, that group we talked about, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, they recommend mammograms between ages 50 and 65. They are pretty good, and they are recommended at least every other year. Right now, Medicare pays for them up to age 75. So most of the people I know are looking at 50 to 75. Some people start at age 40, uh, and that's tricky because you wind up uh, when you start at age 40, a lot of false positives. You're going to probably wind up getting biopsies and extra tests, and we may or may not be able to lower your risk of cancer. We can't prove that. And so the expert groups are have settled in at age 50. Now, if you have a family history of cancer, if you have the BRCA, the BRCA uh, gene, the, all bets are off. You are not an average risk person, and you need to talk to your health care provider about it. But for average risk people, uh, no known genetics that uh, increase your risk of breast cancer, uh, right now, 50 to 75 is the guidelines I'm using. Are you? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Uh, so the question is, uh, and I saw this in the Mayo Clinic. It's been about a year ago. They said, well, what are we going to do as we get older? We, we're going to have people in their 80s, 90s. We're going to have people in their hundreds. Mm-hmm. And uh, what do we recommend for them? We don't want to bother them unnecessarily. We don't want to do unnecessary tests. On the other hand, uh, if a person is looks to be healthy enough to make it to age um, 95, then mm-hmm. why would we allow them to die at age 89 of, of uh, cancer that we, we might have been able to prevent? So they were asking, well, what do we do with uh, women over age 75 and mammograms? So they looked at uh, a million and change women in the study, all had a life expectancy of at least 10 years. Now, how do you know about that life expectancy? I will tell you, the, the thing I tell my patients is the average person who makes it to 65 has 15 years left. The average person. And that, that includes some people who are really not very healthy, but they made it to 65. So if you make it to 65, the average person has 15 years left. Now, that condenses as you get older. But if you make it to 70, I think you're still looking at it easily at 10 years unless you have some terminal condition. So, you know, you think about 65 has 15, 70, certainly you're going to have 10. Maybe you'd have 12 or something like that. Uh, so if you make it to 70, you can expect to be into your 80s. And obviously, once you make it to 75, once you make it to 80, you're pushing and getting close to 90. So the uh, they, what they did, they looked at a million women, all had a life expectancy of 10 years, and meaning that there was nothing really that was uh, killing them actively. Uh, and they had not been previously diagnosed with breast cancer, and they had screening mammograms. 1,500 
breast cancer deaths occur, uh, occur during follow-up if they continued to screen after age 75. 1,300 occurred when we stopped screening. The difference in the risk for breast cancer between continued screening and stopping screening over eight years was no different. Now, you say, wait a minute, there's a difference in deaths. Yeah, but there's a difference in the number of people. The total was a million people. They, uh, uh, they had a, over 1,000 deaths in each group, uh, but the groups were different sized. So when they looked at it, it was exactly the same. Uh, uh, the difference uh, uh, in between continued screening and stopping. Um, a, uh, it looked like uh, in women ages, uh, I'm sorry, if you look at the women ages 70 to 74, yeah, there was a, a, different, a, a little bit of a negative difference. In women ages 75 to 84, the difference uh, actually flipped a little bit, so they, they, they were slightly more likely to die. And, and what that means is, frankly, that it, it just the, the mammograms didn't protect them from anything. So um, women whose breast cancer was diagnosed under the stop screening strategy were more likely to receive chemotherapy, less likely to receive radiation therapy. There were a couple of other things. Uh, the data were only available for eight years of follow-up. Maybe if we continue to screen, we might uh, ha- this might sort itself out in 10 years or something like that. But eight years after they uh, uh, after they, they chose to either stop or continue. They could not tell a difference uh, with stopping at age 75 to 84 uh, versus continuing to screen age 75 to 84. Editorial says the study used data from 1999-2008. Uh, that was when digital mammography was being introduced. And again, this is always a moving target. The mammograms are better than they were. Mm-hmm. They are more, uh, they're able to see smaller things. They may be more definitive than they used to be. Uh, the risk of breast cancer, uh, again, obesity pushes breast cancer. Mm-hmm. So we may have a higher risk of breast cancer than we did. Uh, one third of all of American women who die of breast cancer are diagnosed after age 70. Uh, but once again, we cannot prove benefit after age 75. Um, so uh, the, the editorial that went with this, uh, and by the way, the net benefit among women ages 70 to 4 is pretty small versus when you look at age in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully breast cancer treatment and the geriatric population will improve. We can show that quality screening and treatment lead to reduction in overall mortality. I think just the opposite. I think what's going to happen is we're going to be able to look at genetics and markers. We're not just going to x-ray everybody's breast every year looking for a a little ghost of calcium or something that might indicate a cancer. We should biopsy it. We should follow it. We should get another ultrasound. We should get an MRI, all that kind of stuff. I think we're going to look and we're going to say, based on your genetics, you know, here's your risk. And and we'll get to that so that mammography then becomes a secondary strategy, not a primary strategy. I think that's where we're going to be in 10 years. Right. I think that's where we're going to be for multiple things, too. You know, possibly colon cancer, possibly some, you know, some of these other cancers. It'll be real clear who we need to go ahead and do these. Yeah. What we now screen for uh, will become that secondary test. But this may be this may be feel a little bit better because I, I, I still am not sure they took all women. And, and again, these women were headed for their 80s reliably uh, and they could not demonstrate a difference after 75 and the difference in the early 70s was pretty small. I don't think we're 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 doing a horrible thing uh, when women decide to stop getting mammograms as it currently stands. But if we separated out the people who are going to make it to age 90, if we could figure that out. Uh, and again, they said the technology changes, uh, the other causes of death change. It, it's a, it's really a moving target. It's going to be difficult. But we're not doing something egregiously wrong. That's what I worried about. That when we stop at 75, we were denying women a chance to reach uh, a ripe old age, and that does not seem to be the case with the best numbers we can generate in 2020.
Next up, February 27th, this came from Health Day News, the Governor's Highway Safety Association. I had no idea there was a Governor's Highway Safety Association. And you think, the Governor's Highway Safety Association, it sounds like there's a bunch of governors who are really worried about highway safety. Yeah. Well, they're not. I mean, this is is the governors, I think they possess a highway safety association, but the governors are not on the highway, so it's not a bunch of governors uh, meeting to make safer highways. Just want to let you know. Based on data from the first six months of 2019, there were 6,500 and change pedestrian deaths that year, a 5% increase over 2018. Now, That's, pedestrian, these are, these are walkers, walkers these are only, These are walkers bicyclists. on our nation's highways. Yes, okay. walkers. Walkers only. Okay. Uh, that's the highest number of deaths in more than 30 years. It also is a major change, 5% difference. Um, pedestrians, 17% of all traffic deaths in 2019 compared to 12% 10 years ago. We are killing a lot of pedestrians. And, you know, I mean, we've tried to make our roads safer. We're trying to put in the sidewalks, the multi-use roads. Mm-hmm. It's not working. It is Technology not working. Technology in the vehicles. Yeah. Now, overall, traffic deaths the first half of 2019 were 3.4% lower. But the pedestrian deaths, 5% higher. So hmm. we are, as I said, we are picking off the walkers. Um, in the past 10 years, the number of pedestrian fatalities, says the executive director, Jonathan Atkins, who himself is not a governor. Oh. Point that okay. out. Well. Uh, the number of pedestrian fatalities on our nation's roadways has increased by more than 50%. Five states. Here are the states where you do not walk down the road. Okay. Arizona, California, Florida, Georgia, and Texas, almost half of all pedestrian deaths were in those five states. Now, you know, California, Florida, Texas, almost half of all pedestrians. These are southern states. People are going to be out walking. You know, you just don't see people walking down the road in South Dakota. Right. Doesn't happen. Right. Well, but, urban uh, areas. Yeah. You know, walking yeah. year-round. Yep. That's that's right. Now, here's their thinking on the, the contributors. One, uh, local roads at night and away from intersections, so we need safer road crossings. Yeah, but they're away from intersections, so safer mid, I, I don't know what, road crossing. Yeah, if we build bridges over the roads every, you know, 100 yards. Better public education, you probably shouldn't be crossing there anyway. Oh, now let me tell you that, that there is a thing. You know, we now have clothing that is highly reflective. Uh-huh. I will tell you, the people I see after dark in Moorhead are not wearing the highly reflective clothing. Oh, yeah. I see some people dressed in solid black. I barely see some people dressed in solid black when they're roading, uh, they're walking down the connector between here and the interstate. Very dangerous. You know, if that person were, I don't know, intoxicated or something like that, the police would pick them up. But I think anybody walking in a black outfit after dark and with no lights, that's that's a traffic hazard. I, I don't want to wind up hitting a person like that, and I don't no. see them until I'm right on them. Right. Just a thought. Just a thought. Over the past 10 years, the number of nighttime pedestrian deaths has increased by 67% compared to a 16% increase in daytime. So that's clearly it. You know, uh, this is people walking down the road and you can't see them. Dangerous driving behaviors such as speeding and distracted or drowsy driving. Yeah, they threaten pedestrians, but I I will tell you, those things uh, threaten uh, uh, cars as well. Well, and and how many of the... the, pedestrians are walking distracted. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And so you've got two things. You've got a driver who's uh, uh, perhaps is uh, right now adjusting their map to face true north, and you've got a a person along the sidewalk who's busy texting a friend, and and neither one of them really paying attention. And let's put another thing in. uh, Most of them have earbuds. They're not going to hear the car coming. Uh, This is the world we live in, except we don't live in it. We live in another kind of an electronic world. This is the world we 
are killed in while we're living in another world because uh, we're not paying attention. Uh, another th- cause, and uh, this is one that we've focused on on this show before, um, pedestrians struck by a large SUV twice as likely to die as those struck by a car. We have gone to the light trucks and the SUVs, which have these huge blunt fronts, uh, and you can't vault over a Suburban. No. You, know, you take a, uh, somebody hits you in uh, one of those little cars, uh, they may hurt your legs, but you're probably going to survive that. Whereas if somebody hits you in a suburban, you're flat. You're under that thing. You're not going to go over the top of it when you get hit. Mm-hmm. Um, I am, uh, I think we better stop. <laughs> so much more to talk about. So, so little about. time. Uh, so plus, uh, it's time for the seventh inning stretch, which is uh, usually about the time I exit the ball game, you know. So special thanks to our Moorhead State Public Radio producer, Shamari Mosley, and to Eric Bilbrey, who wrote our Health Matters theme song, and to you, our loyal radio fans. Remember to show your support for Health Matters by visiting our digital empire. To listen to the show, it's WMKY.org. Visit us on Facebook, HM Radio Show. For our radio crew and the supportive folks at the Northeast AHEC, thanks for listening to our show. And remember, the radio that works for someone else may not work for you. Experts can't say which radio is the best for our show because people's ears react to health matters in different ways. Choose the radio and the show that works best for you. The latest radio fad is nothing new and so probably nothing magical. It's easy to get caught up in our latest show, but it's also important to know that most of the topics we discuss are decades old. Decades old. It is unreasonable to expect a high-quality show from Health Matters. Most of our shows are slapdash. I like that. Yeah. I, I copied that. That's Slap not my word. Dash. Slapdash, which means listeners rarely know if we know what we're talking about. As a result, most of our shows lead to skepticism, argument, and debate. Debate. Okay. Finally, health matters doesn't always result in better health. Shows that revolve around calorie restriction will lead to weight loss. But shows that focus on healthy food consumption are not always entertaining. The reverse is also true. Some shows simply are not healthy, even if you're listening closely. So how do you know if your current Health Matters radio show is considered healthy? Experts say most of their research supports shows that are hosted by experts such as themselves. <laughs> by the way, I got this. This was about diets, and I just I love that. Whatever you do, though, do not take this stuff lying down. Get out this week. Make a healthy change in your life. And tune in next week as we discuss how to fall down the stairs in five or six simple steps on Moorhead State Public Radio. Support for Health Matters on MSPR comes from the Northeast Kentucky Area Health Education Center, located at St. Clair Healthcare in Moorhead. Additional information on the Northeast AHEC is available online at neahec.org.